Welcome to ADHD is over, a new podcast on a seemingly old label that we're going to be peeling off. Join my wife, Tatiana, and I as we journey with our family, the Wyden family, through the land of confusing information. We're going to visit both sides and let you decide because the power is with you. Welcome to ADHD is over. Hey, hey, welcome back to our podcast. My guest today is a clinical psychologist and author, often at odds with the mainstream of his profession. Dr. Bruce Levine writes and speaks widely on how society, culture, politics, and psychology intersect. His latest book is Resisting Illegitimate Authority, A Thinking Person's Guide to Being an Anti-Authoritarian, Strategies, Tools, and Models. He's a regular contributor to Counterpunch, Truthout, Salon, Alternet, Take Part, Z Magazine, Op-Ed News, and The Huffington Post. His articles and interviews have been published in The New York Times, Skeptic, Adbusters, The Ecologist, and High Times. Dr. Levine is also on the editorial advisory board of the journal Ethical Human Psychology and Psychiatry, and he is on the medical and scientific advisory board of the National Center for Youth Law. He's also an editorial advisor for the Icarus Project, Freedom Center Harm Reduction Guide to Coming Off Psychiatric Drugs, as well as a member of Mind Freedom and the International Society for Ethical Psychology and Psychiatry. I feel very honored and I'm super excited to welcome Dr. Bruce Levine. Hello, Bruce. Good to be with you, Roman. Same here. Thank you for making time. You are one busy guy because I know uh, you've written a lot. You have a a book out currently. Uh, We'll talk about that, as I mentioned in my intro. And uh, you have a new book in the works. So perhaps towards the end of the episode, we can get into that. I'm excited about that as well. But I want to start out with asking you a question that I often ask uh, my my guests. To you, what is ADHD? Well, it's certainly a description that mental health professionals, teachers routinely use for certain kinds of kids. So we're talking about kids who in, for the most part, these kids get diagnosed and labeled because of their classroom behavior, sometimes at their home life. But routinely what these kids are just not paying attention or they're impulsive or they're too active. Um, in certain settings with certain authorities. And that's really what defines those these kids. Now, does that mean they're a disease? No, okay, it's very situational, okay? So we know, for example, um, and most many mental health professionals know all this, but they're afraid to talk about it, that in a scientific sense, it's not really a valid construct. Why? Because we know that these kids Um, In many different instances, if they're getting paid, if it's one-on-one, if it's novel, new material, um, if they've chosen the material, um, they're fine. They're indistinguishable from other children. And so we know that if you have cancer or diabetes, it doesn't change depending on the situation. So this is a very different kind of phenomenon. The other reason why it's not a scientifically useful construct is that it cannot be reliably diagnosed. So it's not diagnosed by any blood test or brain scan or EEG. It's routinely diagnosed by questionnaires given to teachers, given to parents. And we also know from experience that if a kid is interested in one teacher, um, that teacher does not label him or you, you know go through that questionnaire and diagnose him with ADHD. And with another 
with in with authorities with teachers that the, the, the kid is bored by they're going to get labeled that way so when you have a a phenomenon that is measured differently by different people it's it's not a reliable so in a scientific sense when you have a construct that's not really valid and it, and even if you believe this thing is valid you cannot reliably diagnose this it makes no sense to even try to correlate it with all these other variables like genetics or parts of the brain. It's just, it's just useless in a scientific sense. Great. I love that. And it, it reminds me of a video I saw recently. I think I posted it on our uh, Facebook uh, page, uh, ADHD is over, is that they, they, there's a video circulating where you see a child do math, right? And they're videoing the child doing math for 10 minutes, and then they speed it up. And then they do the same child uh, watching a movie that the child likes and they video that for 10 minutes and they speed it up. And, and next to each other, you can see how when the child's doing math, it is fidgety. It is like, you know, turning around and whatever. And when it's watching the movie, it's just focused and sitting there. It's not even moving. And of course, experts could say, well, you know, it's because they're watching a movie and life isn't about all watching movies. You have to do work. But to me, it kind of describes what you were just saying is that when they're interested in something, when they don't have to do something that's boring or that's forced on them, they can pay attention. Therefore, it's not a deficit. Right. And this is really critical. We're getting to the crux of what's really problematic about this diagnosis on a, on a professional level. So professionals who themselves, for the most part, and I'm making some generalizations, but overall, you've got, when you're talking about professionals, psychiatrists, psychologists, pediatricians, teachers, these are people who are used to doing a lot of things that are boring for them. They're used to compliant. It's a much more cognitively and behaviorally compliant population. They're used to doing things to be able to get their grades. Why is that? Because of their personality. They're, they're much more terrified of like displeasing an authority. Um, and, and, uh, and they're much more, maybe even get a dopamine buzz from pleasing an authority and getting an A, even if what they're looking at is uninteresting. So, you know, when I went to all my training all the way through graduate school, so I was many years hanging out with mental health professionals through training. These are the kind of people who would be miserably angry, bored, but they would still manage to comply with things. And so for them, and this is an important thing in general, many people kind of tend to view like if they could do it, well, they're healthy and people who cannot do that thing. So there's kids out there who it's just so oppressive for them to be forced to pay attention to things that are not interesting to them, that they haven't picked, that isn't, it isn't, um, it isn't, there's no, re there's no stimulation for them. And so when professional type people see kids who are so different than they are, they have to come to the conclusion either A, well, I'm mess, I'm, I'm a problem or they're a problem. And there's a very few mental health professionals say like, well, neither one of us are diseased. We're just diverse. We're different kinds of people. You know, I, I get a, get off on following the rules and being rule governed, which is a, a term that's often used in ADHD literature. Like these kids cannot follow rules. They're not rule governed. And for many of people out there who are not rule governed, we're talking about 
you know, some of the greatest artists, entrepreneurs, um, improv people. I always think about that. Most mental health professionals could not succeed one second <laughs> in an improvisation improv trial. Why is that? Because improv requires spontaneity, impulsivity. It requires like a quick sense of like, this is boring. Don't, don't follow this. Don't pay attention to that. So, you know, that's what we're, that's what we're talking about. Um, and, and I think it's really fundamental to understanding um, ADHD and all of these sort of disrupt, so-called disruptive behavioral disorders in kids to really understand how compliant um, most professionals are. And this is really important too, that they are completely unaware of how extraordinarily compliant they are. So when I would be in my graduate training, anybody who was compliant enough, myself included, to get enough A's to get into graduate school, we were still viewed as non-compliant because we questioned and challenged some authorities. So their degree of compliance, not only are they highly compliant, they're completely aware, unaware of how extraordinarily compliant they are. To use the word almost authoritarian, and when I use the word authoritarian, it means somebody who demands unquestioning obedience from authority and who, who demands unquestioning obedience from subordinates and subordinates who are authoritarian, they de, they will comply unquestioningly. And yeah. I think a lot of author, a lot of psychiatrists, psychologists, and teachers are really unaware of how authoritarian they are. I think it would really freak them out. And, 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 and that's why when they view these kids who just don't pay attention because they're not interested, they're not stimulated, there's nothing in it for them, um, they don't know what the heck to do with them. So they call them, they must have a disease. Yeah, and I, I totally agree with you. And, and there's a term that you, you and I, when we spoke before, you had mentioned, and that, that word is tension. I'd like to get a little bit into that. You had said that really what's present is this tension between the child and the teacher, the child and the parent, the child and the expert or right, the psychologist. Could you elaborate a bit on that? What you what you yeah, meant by like, that? Like so if you think about these teachers, and in, in all fairness to a lot of these teachers who really even know this ADHD is, is a kind of nonsense scientifically. But they're in a classroom, you know, they're terrified their principal is going to walk by and they're going to see kids who are not um, orderly in, in a behaving in an orderly fashion. They're out of their chairs. They're speaking out when they're not called. Um, they're not paying attention. And so that that's really troubling. That's worrisome for some people parent teachers on a personal level that really creates a lot of tension for them. Why is this kid not paying attention and complying to everything I'm saying? But even for some of what well, let's call the cooler teachers out there, there it creates tension because at any point an authority could walk into their classroom and they and they could and they could be viewed, looked at as a bad teacher. And so you're talking about um and that of course happens in a family level too. I mean there's some parents out there who are much more tolerant of tension. They're much more tolerant of, of their kid not doing exactly what they want to do when they want to do it. So they're yeah. like less authoritarian parents and they're they're going to tend to see their kids as less having a disease. Whereas a parent who when they tell a kid to do something and they don't immediately do it, that creates so much tension for them. It, it's like for them, it's like they, they come to the conclusion, either my kid is a bad kid, which they don't want to feel a lot of parents or they have this disease. And so if they're given the choice between whether my kid is a bad kid or they have this disease or disorder, of course, they're going to pick the disorder disease. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's interesting, because obviously, when there's no choice, right, let's say, 
uh, I always say there's no choice and there's an evaluation. Those are two big tension creators, right? If you come in as a child and the, the parent or the teacher says, we're doing this and the child is not really engaged or doesn't like it, then there's no other choice of like, well, could we do this first? Can I go walk around in the yard for a while and then I'll do it? No. And then on top of that, if they're being evaluated with tests and, you know, scores and grades and all that stuff, there's that extra, I call it friction, right? It creates this internal wrestle within the child. And then we think, oh, well, they can't pay attention. They're executive function. They're not functioning well, right? And right. And I think there is, again, mm -hmm. a fundamental difference. And I don't make this, when I make these generalizations, I realize there are exceptions among teachers and mental health professionals, folks who do would get exactly what I'm saying here. But overall, you're talking about the difference between people who are highly sensitive to coercion, you know, and really rebel and resist against anybody trying to control them what to do. And any good artist is rebelling. Any any good artist, lots of good entrepreneurs, you know, certainly when they feel somebody's trying to make them do something that's not what they really want to do, there's an immediate rebellion and resistance. Sometimes it's just not paying attention. It's more passive kind of resistance. Sometimes it's a much more active resistance. But, but here's the difference between them and a lot of professional types out there who don't see it as that big a deal to be coerced. In fact, some of these people are only so happy to find out how what they're supposed to do, what they're being told to do, and they and they get some kind of a tension relief, some kind of satisfaction out of complying with what they're supposed to do, complying with the coercion. And yeah. so that that's a fundamental difference between people. Of course, it's not a black and white thing. People are on a continuum on this thing. But in my experience, I found far more professional teachers, psychologists, psychiatrists types who really are much more okay with people telling them what to do and not being given choice. And in the rest of the world, especially among these ADHD kids or these oppositionally defined kids or a lot of other people who are diagnosed with mental illness, that, that it's oppressive, incredibly oppressive to be controlled and to be told what to do. And I guess a lot of the experts, and this is all uh, transparent on, you can look people up on Wikipedia, a lot of these experts get money on top of it, right? So in other words, they're okay with complying or sort of keeping this system alive and they're getting paid for it. So it's a little bit, it's even more of an incentive to just say, you know what, it's fine. It's, it's not really hurting people that much. Let's just continue it. We're ultimately helping people it's all good, right? And then suddenly we have this follow the money trail and, and, and it just, there's conflict of interest everywhere. Right, and I think that's another big divide between a lot of the professionals, again, at the, at the higher level. I think a lot of mental health professionals, they're embarrassed by this corruption by drug companies. Um, but at the higher level, there's, you know, there's no embarrassment for them. It's like, this is what you do. If you could score, you know, a huge amount, millions of dollars in congressional hearings in 2008, found some of these folks were getting $1.6 million over seven year periods, a long list of folks, the American Psychiatric Association was getting um, a lot, lots of drug company money, the, all the people who are connected with making the DSM, which is the Diagnostic Bible that's published by the American Psychiatric Association, the majority of them had drug company uh, financial connections. And mm -hmm. for a lot of the general public, and really historically, philosophically, if you look back, this is like they have no credibility. Once you're on the take from somebody, you have this conflict of interest. And you're, you're for me, a guy like me, and I think many other people out there, you're not to be taken seriously. You know, if you're getting money from drug companies who are going to standing to benefit 
by more and more people being diagnosed with an illness, and so more and more people are going to be put on, on these drugs, you have a conflict of interest as a provincial, and whatever you're saying is not to be taken seriously. The interesting thing is, if you would listen to any of these folks, is that in, when you see studies on them, they say, oh yeah, that's true for other people. If they have a conflict of interest, yeah, it sways them. But, but, but they believe they're so ethical, they're so moral that when they have their conflicts of interest, they could take millions of dollars or, or all kinds of money from drug companies and it's not gonna affect their research. It's not gonna affect their proclamation. So there's, there's, there's an arrogance there that goes with this conflict of interest. And so for me, that's one more reason that I don't know how anybody could take could take these people seriously. And of course, the same kind of thing goes on in politics. You have legal corruption. You have people who are all, you know, on both parties, Republican, Democrat, they take huge amounts of money from lobbyists, and they still believe that if they're honest, by the way, this is ethics of Congress, and this is the ethics of the uh, psychiatry, is that if you're honest about your um, money that you take, then you're then you're behaving ethically. That's all you right. have to do is be right. honest about it. And, and you can still take plenty of money as long as you're honest in their, in their mentality because they believe, well, we can take this money. It's not going to affect how we vote or it's not going to affect any, any of these things, which is complete nonsense. Yeah, that's that's always blown my mind. You know, I grew up in Switzerland and when I came to the U.S. and I heard about lobbying, I was like, what you mean bribing? It's basically right. just right. But they're like, no, no, no. It's part of the political system. It's legal. It's justified. And it since day one never made sense. I was like, how is that not a conflict of interest? And I think we've been brainwashed, I hate to use that word, but literally we've been made to believe that that's okay, that that's actually a good thing. You know, they need to do that. So that said, I want to get a, uh, into um, illegitimate authority. You have written a book called Resisting Illegitimate Authority. And I love, it says, A Thinking Person's Guide to Being an Anti-Authoritarian. So Let's talk about illegitimate authority because I believe when it comes to parents, right, our audience, parents of children that have been diagnosed with ADHD, they, after a diagnosis or during, they turn to a quote unquote authority. And because that authority has a degree or has a title of psychologist, psychiatrist and whatnot, they automatically assume that that's a legitimate authority, right? So when you talked about illegitimate authority in, in, in your book, what do you mean by that? How did you come to this, this uh, you know, book and what is the main takeaway? Mm -hmm. Well, I think, again, it's real important, the definition of somebody who is an authoritarian, who just who demands and provides unquestioning obedience to authority, whereas an anti-authoritarian is not, it doesn't necessarily anti-authority. The anti-authoritarian is somebody who questions the legitimacy of authority. And if it they deem that authority to be illegitimate, not legitimate, they challenge and they resist it. So the question is, is like, well, how, on what, may, on what, set of uh, values do they judge whether an authority is legitimate or non-legitimate? Well, we just covered one. I mean, I don't know how anybody could be viewed as a legitimate authority when they're on the take from drug companies, whether or not it's legal or not. I mean, there's lots of things in our society that are legal corruption. It's called institutional corruption. We talked about Congress. We talk about psychiatry. many spokes in the wheel of this kind of institutional legalized corruption. But for a real critical thinker, they're going, this is not a legitimate authority. If somebody's getting paid a ton of money from drug companies to have a study come out a certain way or to label or 
or to, to pathologize more normal behavior, how could we take that seriously? There's other aspects that for people to decide whether a uh, an authority is legitimate or not legitimate either. And one of the things, and so that's why I talk a lot about um, the have people understanding the, the, the makeup, the personality, temperament makeup of the mass majority of people who become mental health professionals and teachers and how they're selected into these professions. I mean, let's, let's go to teachers. I mean, most folks, a lot of folks hated school. There's no way they're going to become a teacher. So already the kind of population who goes into teaching there's some of these folks that go like, oh, yeah, I didn't like school. I'm going to be a different kind of teacher. But the vast majority of these folks who become teachers, they were fine with that standardized kind of school setting where, you know, they did what they were told and all of those kinds of things. And the same thing with mental health professionals. So it selects into the profession a certain kind of more compliant, authoritarian kind of person who's completely unaware of that. They don't really know that, most of us. And then the socialization process, and I saw this firsthand, is anybody who really questions or challenges authority, if they don't get labeled with a mental illness, they always, the term that I heard a lot was you have issues with authority, authority <laughs> issues. This was comical. Anybody who like said, you know, would, would raise their hand and say like, well, I don't think this DSM is a legitimate thing. I think it's more like, like they call it a Bible. And I think it really is closer to a kind of theological dogma here than it is kind of any science. Well, this was for, you know, this was considered, you know, you're challenging authority. You're, you've got issues with authority. You must go back to some kind of issue you had with your father or something like that. And, and it was like comical for me that that was a population, unlike a lot of, say, populations of people who go into philosophy or people who go into comedy or like all these other areas. Well, the, of course, you're constantly not taking authority seriously. You're checking where they're coming from, what their motives are. So there's all kinds of ways that you, you assess as a human being whether an authority is a credible, legitimate authority um, or they're not. And the most obvious thing is if they're on the take from a drug company, how can anyone take them seriously? Right. Absolutely. And and we, we also talked about, I remember, that uh, you had sort of outlined briefly that how a legitimate authority has, in, in essence, a playbook uh, about how they would uh, destabilize or sort of make away with the anti-authoritarian, right? They, they make sure that if there's somebody questioning their authority, um, they start to use this process of like, let's destabilize this person or this questioner and then eventually uh, debunk them or deplatform or just, you know, silence their voice, right? You've seen right. that. Yeah. Right. And this this playbook is very simple and it's been going back for thousands of years. It, it was used by, you know, back, back, you know, several hundred years ago, the major power institutions were the symbiotic relationship between churches and monarchies, right? which were used to control populations. And each one of them got a lot of power and a lot of control out of working together. And of course, anybody who challenged that, famous people like Galileo, or not as famous for a lot of folks, but I've spent a lot of time writing about Spinoza, you know, that they, a lot of these folks, and Thomas Paine later on in American history here, that they were in, they were marginalized. And so you can you can marginalize folks, and this is what happens to people nowadays, you can marginalize them without even having to throw them in prison or assassinate them. You can marginalize people financially. Nowadays, you can deplatform people. You can, you know, you can kick them out of university positions. You you won't even let them in university positions. So, you know, for example, and this wasn't, it's it's gotten much worse in psychiatry and psychology as it has in a lot of the other aspects of society. So one of the examples I give is like in the 1970s, 
there was much more tolerance for alternative views in education and in psychiatry. And there was a guy named Lauren Moshe, M-O-S-H-E-R, who had risen to high levels of the National Institute of Mental Health in terms of schizophrenia research. And it was clear to him from looking at the research and his own experience that what the typical treatment for people who had these psychotic breaks of throwing them into mental hospitals and giving them these antipsychotics, it wasn't helping and maybe it was even making it worse. So he said like, why don't we try something different that won't be that expensive just for an experiment? And he, and he came up with this thing called Soteria House, S-O-T-E-R-I-A, it was in Santa Clara, California. And it was just basically a respite center staffed by non-professionals who just were trained to like, just chill with people, that's all. And it was almost, they, they very rarely used any kind of psychotropic drugs. Um, and these are people who had been psychotic. And it, it was very rare that they had to use that. And these people um, in the short term did as well as people who were hospitalized. And in the long term, they did much better. So here's the, here's the what I want to get to. So what happens to Lauren Motion? 1980, um, everything kind of sort of shifts in America. It's a big year. Ronald Reagan, this right wing uh, guy who got authoritarian guy who got famous in California for putting down student unrest. And so he gets elected president, sort of shocking for a lot of people in the 1960s and 1970s. Not only that he was this B-movie actor, but that this clear-cut, like, authoritarian strongman had become elected president. So that's 1980. 1980 um, is the year that Lauren Moshe gets fired as the director of the National Institute of Mental Health. They just heave him out, and ultimately, they shut down funding. Now, Lauren Moshe doesn't get assassinated. He doesn't go to jail. He doesn't all of those things, but he's marginalized. And that's what that's and, and why is that happened? Because by the 1980s, psychiatry and the drug companies have gone into partnership. They actually use that word. There's this medical director of the ABA, the American Psychiatric Association, a guy named Sapshin, who actually says he's, we have a proud partnership between the American Psychiatric Association and drug companies. And so what had happened to psychiatry, and we can talk about this later if you're interested, is they, they were under the gun in the 1970s. One flew over the cuckoo's nest, wins the Oscars. You know, homosexuality is being seen as obviously politically motivated and abolished, not for any scientific reasons, but because, because politics, the gay activists won the battle and they kicked out that think because they didn't want to be called mentally ill. And so it was clear psychiatry was being laughed at. It was a joke. And so psychiatry, they, they knew they really couldn't improve themselves as a science, but they could get a lot of backing through drug companies because they both had this could have this symbiotic relationship. And so that's what happened in the 1980s. And part of one casualty of which there are many casualties, but was Lauren Mosher, a huge powerful guy in the National Institute of Mental Health gets heaved out, gets you know, gets fired. And, and so that's one way that you can marginalize somebody without putting them in prison or, or assassinating them. And so that's kind of the playbook that what goes on. And it just makes sense. If you're if you're a control freaking power, you want political and financial power and people threaten you, whether it's 500 years ago, you know, in the church and the monarchy or now with drug companies in the corporate state, you're going to use the same playbook, right? Yeah, no, that's true. And I just want to highlight something you said for the, the parents that are listening uh, in the DSM, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, right, that we, we use or they use to uh, diagnose mental disorders such as ADHD, up until 1973 considered homosexuality a disease, right? That's what it was up until then. And then, like you just mentioned, uh, because of activist pressure, they eventually removed that. And 1973 is not that long ago. That's I was three years old 
you know. Yeah, the homosexuality example is really usually important and a major uh, tell for any critical thinker because what had happened was, again, for, for psychiatrists, for mental health professionals, the idea of homosexuality created enormous tension, right? Back in back in the 50s, back in the 40s. In fact, some of these people viewed themselves as progressive because they were thinking like, well, we shouldn't call it a crime or a sin, that it would be better to call it a mental illness. And they actually viewed themselves as enlightened progressives. But of course, they had to call it something other than normal because it created all this tension. And so what happened was, though, they were unaware, the American Psychiatric Association, that culture and society was changing. You had Stonewall protests in New York in 1969. You had gay activism going, you know, and you had folks who had enormous courage, who didn't mind coming out and maybe risking losing their job because they didn't want to, they, they, for them, they realized they were going to get just as stigmatized being called criminal or sinful as being called mentally ill. For them, they wanted to view their homosexuality as a normal kind of human variation, which now we see that that's that's like the most like mainstream thing to say right now right. is in 2021. But it was totally radical to say then. So they succeed. And the interesting thing was they succeed. Why do they succeed? Well, first of all, there are adults who can organize. Second of all, there were gay, gutless act psychiatrists who wanted it not to be. They were afraid to come out. Eventually they did. They would come out, you know, after these gutsy, courageous gay activists came out at, at first. And so they had there were all these political reasons to change the culture, the fact that they were adults and they can organize, you know, that 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 changed that. And but and so what does psychiatry do? 1980. Yeah. Um, uh, in 1973, homosexuality is eliminated officially as a mental illness. But 19. And so 1980 DSM-3 comes out. That's when that's published and it's not in there. But what do they do? It's larger. If you take a look at it, that's when ADHD, ADHD, that's when oppositional defiant disorder comes in. So they start pathologizing kids more and more. And I'm not I'm not a conspiratorial theorist saying that they were sitting around in the APA thing and like, well, we won't have to worry about kids organizing and all that. We won't have to worry about famous you know, kids like we had to worry about famous gay folks. And so the reality is, though, for the last 40 years, you know, how is it going to be possible for ADHD kids to organize? You know, well, 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 I knew when I was going to graduate school in the 80s, at some point, there would be a lot of folks who are diagnosed as ADHD or oppositional defiant when they were kids who, when they would grow up, they would be really upset because then yeah. they could say something about it. And so part of my sort of separating myself my selfish reasons for separating myself from my mental health profession starting in the mid 1980s, late 1980s, it was I knew this was going to happen. And I wanted to be able to say I wasn't one of those people who threw you under the bus, right. threw you under the big pharma bus. And, and, that, and now some of that stuff is starting to happen. But it's interesting because if you look at the, the, the gay movement, right, you had the activists, like you said, they organized their adults, they went out in the street, they put pressure on the authorities, and that got, and it changed, right, it made a difference. Now with, uh, with kids and ADHD, it's really up to the parents, right? But what would be the reason for parents to organize and go out in the street uh, to uh, push back, right? It's, it's not really... It's not an urgent matter because they think they're doing the right thing for their children because they can focus, get their get their degree and be happy and make money. But later, the adults, you know, the kids that then have grown up to become adults that look back at their childhood often uh, 
um, have some resentment towards their parents or their teachers or whoever diagnosed them. And so, but it's too late to organize now because they're adults, they're, they've moved on, you know, they don't consider themselves as ADHD anymore. So there's not that like uh, uh, activist force uh, coming to change it. That's, uh, that, that's my concern, right? There's not a right. No, a that's need. absolutely true. There's a minority of parents such as yourself and I, and I talk to them all the time who are critically thinking enough and worry about their kids resenting them for trying to get them to be something that they're not, whether it's behavior modification or through drugs. And they, they're hit to this. They realize, because they're very sensitive to the idea themselves that like how much resentment I would have for some other authority who tried to manipulate, control, coerce me into being something that they're not. But that's not the majority. That's not the majority of parents. And it's not the majority of American society. So it's going to be, they're always going to be in a, you know, they're not going to have that powerful activist position. And so a lot of, I assume what you're doing with your show is to at least validate those people and say like, well, maybe you're not going to be able to change your society because most of society just wants their kids to, sh to comply. And these authorities with all their degrees, PhDs, of which I have and MDs, I know how you get them. You know, they're going to tell you like, well, your kids are diseased and you have to, you can, well, they don't even try behavior modification anymore. They go straight to the drugs. That's what they used to do. They would try something else and then they would go to the drugs when that didn't work. Now it's just straight to the drugs. And they used to, say like, well, we'll use Ritalin because that's not an amphetamine, even though it was technically amphetamine-like. Now they don't even play around. Let's go straight to the Adderall and Vyvanse, which are amphetamines, okay? And yeah. so, you know, and, and in this society, it's like, that. it just tells you like people are so terrified of not fitting in, not complying. Parents are so terrified. Oh my God, they're telling me my kid's not going to fit in. He's not going to graduate high school. He's certainly not going to go to college. I'm a failure as a parent. And here's another hugely critical point that I get to a lot in this current book that'll be out in a few months is that you have to understand how fear makes people irrational. And so a lot of, if you really want to help people on an individual level or what you do, you know, what you're doing on your podcast is, is, is that you have to understand that no matter how critically thinking some people are, if you get them terrified enough, whether for themselves or for their kids, they're gonna lose their capacity for critical thinking for reason. And they're gonna comply with the authorities who have the ability to look like they know what they're talking about. And I can tell folks from my professional training, that's the major training in professional training. Not really, if you wanna really learn true science, critical thinking, most people are learning it on their own. In that socialization process, what you learn is like how to look like somebody who knows like they're talking about, <laughs> not like be somebody who actually knows what they're talking about. And this is really the case you see in politics and a lot of the kind of you know famous kind of authorities in all aspects of their life. They're really good, whether it was Donald Rumsfeld in the Defense Department or Dick Cheney or uh, you know whoever we can go through. They, these people have spent a lifetime knowing how to convince the majority of people that they are somebody to be taken seriously, but they don't. They really aren't. Some Somebody who knows anything. And what you're describing reminds me, obviously, of the current situation around COVID, right? And everything that's happening with like Fauci basically calling himself science and saying, if you disagree with me, you disagree with science. I mean, how did you, when you heard that comment, what, what was there for you? 
Well, it's typical authoritarian thing. For me, it's no different than some pope or some cardinal saying, like, well, if you disagree with me, you disagree with God or Jesus. I mean, it's like that's the game that these folks do. That and 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 the reality is that anybody who knows anything about real science knows that it's an ongoing discussion. That people, it's an ongoing debate, and real scientists would not get upset and put anybody down for saying anything. They would just say, "Prove it," you know, or "Disprove it," or like, you know, there, there's a, there's a, there's an ongoing discourse. Real scientists know that throughout history, a lot of things that have been claimed as true turn out not to be true. I mean, yeah. you know, Einstein when he went about. It, it, it created a lot of tension by saying the one of the most revered guys among science was Newton. And, and from Einstein's gut and his intuition was saying, like, he was my hero, Newton, but I don't think he's got it all right here. And he created tension. But in real science, nobody's allowed to say, like, well, like, let's put him in jail for, like, doubting whether Newton had it completely right. It's like more like, OK, let's see. Let's prove it. And so that he went about that whole process. And that's a whole interesting history, how they finally proved general relativity. But when you have anybody, this should be a tell for anybody in your audience. When you have anybody who's saying like, well, if you disagree with me here, you know, I'm, you're, you're, you're anti-science. Well, this person's more, if they're, they're functioning as a theologian, they're functioning like as, as a dog, dogmatist, they're not functioning as a scientist. Yeah, and I feel like uh, for me, I'm trying to function like a philosopher. I'm trying to, or I am listening to experts that I feel are not tainted, right? They don't, there's no, uh, uh, like I would say, I mean, I can't right now swear by the life of me that it's every single expert, but I would, I would bet it's at least 99% of the, the experts and the people I've interviewed have no ties to pharma, have gotten zero money from organizations that are pro meds or pro pathologizing, uh, people with this disorder. And so I try to go in that direction and, and ask questions and say, Hey, what if, the the side the pro label pro medication side is overlooking something or what if they're assuming this is the truth but just like you said with with homosexuality having been a disorder up until 73 same with doctors promoting smoking uh remember when when deed was completely fine to be sprayed in the streets in the summer mm -hmm. and everybody was breathing it in there's teflon right um all these Monsanto, all these companies who are like, no, 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 this is, this is good. This is healthy. This is real. This is the truth. I just, my, something starts crawling my skin. You know, I, I can't just take it for what it is. I guess that makes me an anti-authoritarian, but I'm proud of that because I keep questioning for the good of humanity, not because I want, I need to be right. Or, uh, uh, you know, I have some agenda or I'm getting money from anyone just because it doesn't make sense. It doesn't compute. Right. It really sets people apart. I mean, there's people in all lines of work who they enjoy, actually, that tension, that dissonance of like, is somebody right? Is somebody wrong? You know, is this the truth or isn't it the truth? And there are other folks out there that 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 tension um, is so painful. It's so awful. They have to have it immediately resolved by some authority. And so you see that on in the political realm. Um, in America on, uh, you know, right-wing authoritarians and left-wing authoritarians who like they're only, they're, there's a tension of what's, what, what should we believe? What's moral? And they immediately move towards sort of a talking point 
um, authorities of like, this is the way you're supposed to behave because they want to reduce the attention. They want to know that what they're doing is right. They want to know that they're, they're, the other folks on their team, whatever there is, their red team or their blue team are not going to abandon them. So they can't handle that. And then there's other folks out there who are more critically thinking, more philosophical, more scientific, more artistic, who are going like, no, that, that's going to make you, that's going to make life so boring. That's going to make you so boring. That's just, it's just not worth the deal. And, you know, what's really sad nowadays more, and this has happened in other eras in American history. It's, it's, so it's not the only era, but it's an era right now where it's not just like, you know, you're going to lose some friends and you're going to create some tension. You really are going to get marginalized for saying something that's like buck, bucks the system in any, in any way that people are, are more terrified than ever. I give you one example that's relevant to ADHD. I, I did this recent piece about you know talking about just fear controlling so much of American society. And one of the things that sort of the real sad thing is that kids, some kids can pay, you know, who are labeled ADHD will pay attention to some teachers. They'll, it happens all the time. It's like I found some teacher in school who was really interesting, dad, really interesting, mom, because they were talking about this and they were talking about that. And they had a sense that this person was really fearless and they were authentic. And maybe everything they said wasn't right, but they were trying to be as real and authentic as possible, which is interesting, right? And so nowadays you've got teachers and I get emails from, I just got one recently from this guy, real articulate teacher, you know, who told me, said, I've become one of those boring teachers. You know, I wasn't. I've been teaching history for 20 years, but I'm so terrified of school boards, of parents, of my peers and all of that, that if I say one wrong thing that you're not supposed to say, then I'm going to lose my job. And I, you know, I, and I have to you know, pay my mortgage and all that. And so there's that fear of like, oh my, you know, that a person who just happens to sort of say something that they believe in that may not toe the party line, that they're going to get kicked out of their teaching job. And, and so that creates enormous, not a, it creates enormous boredom, even more boredom than the classroom. At least I remember when I was going to school, there would be teachers who would get away with saying all kinds of idiotic, inappropriate things, but they were interesting. I remember it. I remember some teacher saying, you know, I don't mean all these teachers who are like unafraid or are really saying intelligent things. Sometimes they would say some stupid things, but I remember that those are the things that were really, wow, that was interesting. I remember that it got my attention, you know, right. and, and, and there's not even, there's not going to be any of that. And so you're going to have, and of course, this helps people who want to diagnose more kids as ADHD. It helps the drug companies because the more that you have schools boring, and it's hard to imagine for me, schools were pretty boring when I went there, but they're going to get them even more boring from talking yeah. to teachers all the time who tell me that they're terrified, that they want to leave because they can't say anything or they're afraid to say anything, or even they're going to say something that's not even inappropriate. Somebody's going to misinterpret it. They're, it's going to be misunderstood. And so you've got that much fear. The place is going to become so boring that you're going to have almost everybody's going to have ADHD. Who, you know, what kind of person could pay attention to somebody who's like totally inauthentic, totally fake, totally scared? Well, and you bring up a good point, And I think I mentioned this before that I believe that if we were to take the spectrum, right, of ADHD, autism, Asperger's, even just those three, right? And you take everybody that's been diagnosed and everybody that thinks they, they might get diagnosed and then the ones that don't want to get diagnosed, right? If we add all these, these people up, I, I, I'm pretty sure we've reached already a tipping point where the normals are in the minority, that's just my my guess because I I meet so many people daily. When I mention the word ADHD and I throw that into a crowd of ten, six or seven people will say, "Oh yeah, yeah, me or my my mother, me, my son." You know, it's just 
everywhere, but we don't look at it that way. We think there's still a normal and then there's the outcast, right? These sort of disordered ones. But I think, and if I'm wrong now, in a few years, I mean, that there's going to be a tipping point and the new normal will be, let's call it neurodiversity. I'm not a huge uh, a fan of the term, but really we all have different brains. We all operate differently and, and the one size fits all just does not fit. Right. It's never, and, and you can have, and this is a huge thing that people who are um, in, in the whole history of philosophy, they studied this, this issue of tolerance is a gigantic issue of like, what are you going to do with, with diversity, whether it's diversity of religious beliefs or diversity of political beliefs or diversity of like what we're talking about, personalities, temperaments, what are you going to do with that? Are you going to try to get everybody, are you going to terrorize everybody to kind of try to be one, you know, one kind of like cog in an assembly line, you know, which you know, which is the benefit for a lot of people, because um, that's what, you know, it, it makes the sort of assembly line work faster. And also, too, it's the benefit of folks, you know, who want to be able to treat people who don't fit into that. Or are you going to have a society, which is really sad for me, because it was really in the 1960s, 1970s, it was by no means perfect. But there was much more of a momentum of like, no, the whole isn't the whole goal to create like a society that we could have diversity, that we could have, for example, and this was not so radical to talk about back then was like, of course, you've got kids with different kind of learning styles, different kind of temperaments, different kind of personalities. How could we possibly work to have one standardized school, school one size fits all? It makes no sense. So let's try to put our energies, our, our put our put our money in our society, creating diverse learning environments. Well, of course, there are people who say, no, let's put our money into bailing out bankers or corporate welfare. And that's pretty much what's happened. You know, so you've got. You know, you've got these schools, you know, who, where, which are places that are that are just, be, you know, like even less diverse than what were, people were talking about in the 60s and 70s. And so you've got, you know, it, it, it's 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 the it's the fundamental issue of like, what do you do with diversity, which goes back to homosexuality, you know, which goes back to almost all of these things that are classified as mental illnesses, mental disorders in certain cultures and certain societies that were a certain kind of diverse way of being cognitively, um, intellectually, you know, temperament wise is, is accepted and appreciated. They're not labeled as sinning or cr criminals or mentally ill. It's just really realize that, that they're part of it. Like I was throwing the example out before of like improv. I mean, do you want anybody in your improv group who really is cool with boredom, who's like afraid to, to take a chance and challenge an authority? No, you're gonna, you're never gonna get a gig. I mean, you're gonna be the most boring group out there. And, and the same thing, and really in a group of entrepreneurs who are sitting around trying to figure out like what, what product may work, or, or certainly among artists or philosophers. So in certain things, I'll give you an example for me as a writer. I've written all of these books. When I'm in the initial process of writing, uh, you know, it's really incredibly helpful that a lot of things go through my head and I don't want to pay attention to them. Or I'm reading some stuff and it's so boring and I don't want to read it. Or even my own stuff, when I do a first draft and I go through it and I'm going like, wow, that's kind of boring. Who wants to, you know? And I say, well, if it's boring for me, it's going to be boring for everybody else. And it's out. I delete it. And so that kind of mentality. But when I get to the level of, say, proofing it, proofreading it, 
You know, for me, it's like, yeah, I want to be in a, if I can, I want to be in, in a different kind of temperament, or I'd love to have somebody who's obsessive compulsive, you know, who's like really rigid and controlling. And, you know, I guess at that stage, even somebody who's doing a lot of psychostimulants, because that's really about the only thing that when, when you look at studies, the only kind of thing that, that these psychostimulants really help people in really gross tasks. So they'll help somebody stay awake for a lot of hours or attend to a boring kind of a thing. And so, you know, the, the point of it is even in different activities, whether it's, you know, writing that, that at, at, at different stages, you want different, you, you know, you want to have, move into different modes. And, and, and that's really kind of a tragic thing when you're talk, telling kids that who they are is problematic when we know that who they are fits into a lot of places greater, uh, much, much, much better. And so you're, you're eliminating those kind of people from society, but and also you're making them feel like there's something wrong with them. Yeah. But, you know, last point on that, I think so maybe we'd get to it later, but it's the other issue of tension is the, the people themselves who are being diagnosed, not just people with ADHD, but a lot of these other kind of psychiatric disorders that there a lot of these folks feel there's no choice to reduce their tension, but to embrace these disorders because they feel like their only choice is that they're either going to be viewed as lazy, stupid, narcissistic, or something negative, or to be viewed as somebody with a, a mental illness who's responsibly doing what they should in terms of treatment. And so if that's their only choice, of course, they, they pick they pick the, the second part, which was not the choices that were being handed out like you know, 30, 40 years ago, especially these gay, gay activists. They were going, like, I'm not picking that choice of being viewed as mentally ill. No, they're going to pick an, another choice here. And so that's what happens. And you see that it's really sort of stunning for me that people even embrace disorders like, for example, the borderline personality disorder, that among mental health professionals, that's a person that they're terrified of. That's like Glenn Close and fatal attraction. <laughs> that's the person who has like no boundary, no zero boundary issues. They, 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 they just are scary. They're labile. They're suicidal. They're self-damaging. You know, and but I'll see people, so, uh, young folks will show me their Tumblr accounts and they'll show me these different people who label themselves with borderline personality disorders, not really even realizing they're identifying themselves with 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 a with a diagnosis that most professionals that's the way of communicating like oh i'm scared of that person and if one professional refers another person say oh i'm referring to you a borderline personality or the other professional goes oh thanks a lot you know <laughs> and so they but they embrace these things that are really almost like pejoratives among among mental health professionals yeah, the word disorder has never sat right with me. And I've had a pushback from some of the authorities on the pro, you know, meds pro label side to say, well, you just don't understand the, the terminology or you're just uh, you're not looking at it the right way. And we need to have this needs to be a disorder. And it actually is a disorder is their argument. And I will say, even if it was, let's say it actually was a disorder, right? Let's take ADHD. My point is that we're not realizing that slapping that label onto a child at an early age, that the damage to the self-confidence or the self-image to that child, they're not taking that into account 20 years down the road when that child is depressed, lonely, insecure, and so forth, and goes, I don't know why. Oh, I have this disorder. That's why. But they don't have it you know, that's not why it's the, the initial impact of that. Like there's something wrong with you. You're disordered. You're broken. They're not taking that into account. I've talked to many of them. They're like, no, that's not really, that doesn't really, it's a disorder. You know, that, that doesn't damage their self-image. Hell yeah. 
Right. They want to convince themselves that it's it's an upgrade, this idea, an illness like any other. This is what you hear in their idea that you can in their anti-stigma campaigns, that if we if we declare, we get the whole society to believe that all of these psychiatric disorders are like diabetes or like cancer, and that's an illness like any other, that that's going to destigmatize. And they don't understand it just doesn't work that way. And, and it doesn't, I could go through it rationally why it doesn't work, but just the research shows this. The research shows it over and over again, that, that if when people are viewing other folks with having some biochemical brain disease, they're more stigmatized. People don't wanna hang out with them. And at some level, people get something you know, they get some kind of like understanding and they're, they're held less responsible for having these biochemical brain disease, but they get more, more stigmatized. They get more, maybe they feel even worse about themselves. And it doesn't work the same way as it works with, say, diabetes or cancer or something like that. Fundamentally, it doesn't work that way is because these these particular things that we're talking about from ADHD or even to other kinds of mental illness, they're scary things for a lot of people out there, parents. and so. You know, when folks, you know, are, are accept this idea that they have this biochemical defect, um, they're going to, I mean, you're going to have incredibly tolerant people who like say, okay, well, I'll still be friends with you. Or I'll still date you. But at a fundamental level, you've made yourself a less desirable person. You, you like by saying you have this biochemical defect and it's just not true. That's the, you know, it's just a total tragedy because there's absolutely zero evidence that there's any kind of genetic biochemical defect to these people. And, and so they've been sold this bill of goods that it's, that it's a benefit. They'll be less stigmatizing if this happens. And it's just not empirically or even rationally true. Yeah, no, that's absolutely. I agree with you hundred percent. Now talk to me about your, the book as much as you'd like the book in the works, your soon to come out book. Uh, that you're working on right now. Um, I'd love to hear a bit more about that. It sounds fascinating. And uh, like I said, share as much as you'd like or as little as you'd like. Sure. Well, it's called it's a professional without reason. And it's long subtitled crisis of contemporary psychiatry untangled and solved by Spinoza free, free thinking and radical enlightenment. And, you know, what the, 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 the starting point for me in writing this thing was that I had written some other books specifically about psychiatry. I written a book about depression that came out in 2007. But for for about you know uh, several years, I just felt like you know they had a success. They had succeeded in making psychiatry so boring. Nobody wanted to read a book about it. And that's what happens when you turn something into dogma, um, and you turn people who are and arguing against dogma. And so. So actually, I took a look just for the heck of it that when I was come, trying to come up with a good title for this book was that, you know, for over the last 20, 25 years, nobody even pro-psychiatry or anti-psychiatry books, of which there are a lot, nobody wanted to put psychiatry even in the title because they knew it was an, it was an instant turnoff, that they had, create, they had taken this whole realm of human existence, which should be really stimulating and interesting, how, why people act the way they do, why they do self-destructive things, why, why they don't fit. All these things should be really interesting, and they had made it boring. So I didn't want to write a book about this stuff until I could if I could, unless I could figure out some way of making it interesting. And so the, the way that it, it really came to me over the years, I've been interested in the, in the philosopher uh, Spinoza for my whole life. And at certain points, you know, I've learned more and more about who he is. And at some point it became like, oh my God, what would be most interesting, at least it is for me and a few people who've read it, it's very interesting for them. We'll see how many people it's interesting for, is to like get into his head, get into Spinoza's head. And I'll 
give you I'll tell you why specifically Spinoza in a second and see how he would view contemporary psychiatry. And so what the interesting about Spinoza, number one, we were talking about ethics or financial ethics. I mean, this is a guy who was scrupulous. I mean, he got offered, he was like, you know, he got offered prof jobs. And even if there was a hint that he would have to do something that would create some kind of conflict of interest that he couldn't say and philosophize exactly what he wanted, he wouldn't do it. So the idea right off the get-go for a guy like Spinoza to take a look at these financial conflicts of interest, he would immediately dismiss everything about psychiatry. So that's at one level. But the other interesting things about him was this guy was most, most of us now, if they know anything about it, I should tell for your audience who don't know anything about him, he was born in 1632 who died in 1677. He's a Dutch philosopher, stayed in the Netherlands his whole life, born in Amsterdam. And, and the Netherlands in that era was the most tolerant place on the planet. Um, it was the Dutch golden age. And Amsterdam was the most tolerant, not completely tolerant, um, but especially for his ancestors who were Jews who fled the uh, Portuguese and the Spanish Inquisitions, they, his, his family specifically, the Portuguese Inquisitions. And so it was a dream come true for a lot of people fled there. Descartes fled there, like Locke fled there, all these other philosophers. It was a very tolerant, relatively tolerant place, not completely. Calvinist authorities still had some degree of control and they still were able to ban some of his books and, and, and get some of his buddies in trouble. But the interesting thing about him was, if you go back in that era, and we were talking about this before when we were using terms philosophy and science, back in that era, to be a philosopher was to be a scientist. It just meant the quest of you know, somebody who was using kind of rational discourse to get to truths. Okay, that's what a philosopher was. And it's only sort of like around the 1800s that people started to separate out science from philosophy, and now you go to a psych, you know, you're you go to a become a philosophy major, and you and you're stuck with metaphysics and epistemology. All of these things are considered philo philosophy. But back in his era, all of these things, you know, so he did scientific experiments. So here's a guy who's interested in science as we know it. You know, he was interested in rational discourse. If you look at most philosophy books, he's he's usually put in the same kind of grouping as the continental rationalists like Descartes and Leibniz. But he cared a lot about science as we know it today too. And he cared a lot. And this was the thing that I learned about much later. When I was real young, his life fascinated me because he got excommunicated and banished from his whole community. So that was a real fascinating thing. And his self-help really fascinating because it was really a precursor to a lot of what we call cognitive behavioral therapy. And so that was really interesting. But later on, I realized that he, he had these other really important book that is only in the last 40, 50 years that historians and philosophers are making a big deal about called the Theological Political Treatise, in which it was like one of the first major Bible criticisms. So I have one chapter in the book called Two Bibles, and I go through Spinoza's critique of the Bible. Um, and, and, you know, basically it was a courageous thing at that time. And the, the book came out in 1670. And he wrote it anonymously, but they figured out who did, and he, and he and it got and he got in trouble for that. But you know, he didn't go to jail or anything like that. He's lucky. But you know what what happened was he he was one of the first folks to say, look, the Bible is not this book of God. It's not written by God. Like if you look at like this book that is supposedly written by Moses, it couldn't have been written by completely by him because it's talking about his death and burial. And so, it was one of the first Bible uh, criticisms. And so here's the interesting thing that's super relevant for Spinoza to take a look at psychiatry is that he, you know, he understood the nature of the politics 
Um, and he wasn't just trying to make fun of the Bible for no reason. He understood it gave this clergy, these ecclesiastic authorities, a huge amount of power. People believed it was the divine word of God versus that it was just this kind of moral narrative, you know. And and so he understood that that was the re that was what they could use to curtail his freedom of thought, his freedom of speech. And that's what he cared most about. He was a guy who cared about freedom, freedom of thought, freedom of speech. He cared about freedom from monarchs. He was one of the first people to believe in democracy. And he cared about freedom, you know, freedom to express oneself, freedom, freedom from mob rule too. He just cared passionately about freedom. So there's a lot of reasons why it was, I felt like it would be fun for people to kind of learn about who this guy was and use him as sort of a lens to take a look at contemporary psychiatry. Yeah, and that's very fascinating to me. I mean, it's like there's so much to unpack and there's so many nuggets in here, right? But the most fascinating part is to question any text or any, you know, I've done this since a young age myself when I heard about religion and why we go to church and what we're saying in those, you know, prayers, what we're actually, you know, why is that there? Why am I repeating it? And I get the the power of prayer, but questioning say the bible or a, a scientific study or you know if there's conflict of interest to me now what I'm, I'm getting what you're saying is like this it's it's okay to be anti-authoritarian and then there's some authority that obviously like uh you know a red light traffic light a policeman who uh, calls you out for speeding right and stuff like that there's some authority that yes it creates a structure of workability in society so we can function. But for the most part, what I'm hearing is that uh, today we're not really, it feels like we're less and less allowed to question uh, authority, especially the what you would call Ill illegitimate authority. And, and that happened just recently when I was listening to uh, a podcast, the Joe Rogan podcast with uh, Dr. Malone, right, the mRNA the inventor of the patents of the mRNA technology and the vaccines. And he himself said, I got deplatformed from Twitter for basically stating truths and scientific facts. And he said, you don't have to support me or hail me or make me a, some kind of hero. But the fact that I'm not allowed at the table of discussion is a warning sign. There's something going on, right? Did you also feel that? Right. And I think people have to, one of the kind of fun things I hope people get out of reading this book is that that particular issue has been, is like, there's no more important political philosophical issue is like, what are we going to do? You know, how tolerant are we going to be of a society of different points of view? Um, and mm -hmm. I should also add, you know, talking about one of the fun things that I would, before I knew that much about Spinoza was that I knew that Einstein revered him. And that was fascinating for me is like the greatest scientist. Well, most people consider one, at least one of the greatest scientists of the 20th century revered this, you know, sixth, you know, philosophy, 17th century philosopher. And, and it was a lot of, of there's there's a lot of reasons why he did. But part of it was because it was like there's this tradition that it goes way back. And, you know, you can't kill the human heart. There's always going to be some people who so want to get to the truth. They're willing to risk. Um, the censures and the oppressions of authorities around them. And that's why a guy like Spinoza, um, he, he's sort of a hero for a lot of uh, modern, even modern scientists. Um, and, you know, a lot of things that he said, nobody agrees with everything he said. There was things, you know, in, in, that, that I get into in the book here that most, most of the stuff that he said is not radical. It was incredibly radical back in his day. It's just progressive stuff today. But there's some stuff that people wouldn't buy today. And, 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 and that's just 
it, it's just so it's so I think it's just so tragic. One of the reasons why the Dutch Republic did so well and they were smart, even though you had the same kind of religious Catholic Protestant thing that was going on all over Europe. The Calvinists there, they realized that if we could be a little bit more tolerant here than uh, the rest of Europe, we're going to attract all the best minds in all of Europe. And that's exactly what had happened. We're going to attract not only all these brilliant philosophers and technical and scientist people, we're going to attract people like this was Spinoza's family, people who had financial merchant connections all over the world. We're going to be this little tiny country that's going to be able to be incredibly powerful and influential. And for a few years, they were able to do it. And so one of the points that Spinoza tries to sell is that even if you don't care about this tolerance issue on an individual level, you should really care about it as a society because it really works out great. You're going you're gonna to be superior technologically, financially. Once you have oppression, you know, in terms of free thinking and, and tolerance, it really it makes it miserable for, for folks like you and me and Spinoza. But even if you're not one of those folks, it's going gonna, it's gonna to set your society backwards. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's that's my only concern is that, you know, coming at it from ADHD, even though it, there's a huge parallel with COVID, um, I'm my concern is that uh, voices like ours and there's others out there. We're not the only ones questioning the traditional ADHD narrative, but I've found us to be a bit more inclusive of all different points of views around ADHD. Um, I, I'm concerned that eventually the same thing will happen, which is, well, that's not really a scientific approach and you don't know what you're talking about and this is not valid and we need to deplatform, take it off, you know, store it away, stuff it away, like you said, marginalize. Um, I'm concerned about it. I'm not scared. And if it happens, it happens. You know, I keep going. I'm going to keep questioning it. Uh, but it's it's not a good it's not a fun thought to think that uh, uh, people like ourselves need to be concerned about that, that suddenly this isn't going to be just, you know, we can't question anymore because questioning is just questioning. We're not we're not rebelling. We're not fighting or violently opposing someone. It's just asking questions. Right. Hoping the other the other side comes to the table with valid arguments. We can both sit down hear both. That's why I'm saying in, in this COVID scenario, how come there isn't some international town hall with experts on both sides? I think there's two main sides bringing their evidence, right? We can all tune in. It's televised. We can watch it live and we can see for ourselves. Who do we trust when they're arguing with each other? Who's more defensive and, and angry and irritated and who's more rational and who has the better, you know, why is that not happening? Well, I know you know the answer to that. Right. I mean, and, and, and that I think is going to happen. People to get a historical sense that any time that you create enormous fear or there is fear or it's exacerbated or um, you're going to have population, a big part of population, even people who are ordinarily critically thinking. And I see that all the time. It's sort of shocking for me. People who are ordinarily critically thinking, say, about the whole sort of military industrial complex or, or the Republican and, and Democrat, um, you know, uh, corruption, institutional corruption by lobbyists and people who are ordinarily critically thinking. But when they get them scared enough about like, oh, my the teacher's saying my kid has ADHD and he's not going to be able to go to college or something having to do with COVID. If you get people frightened enough that all of a sudden their critical thinking you know, drops off the window 
and and that and that's just historically the case. And I I think one of the the the, the sort of ironic things is I moved myself into this Spinoza head off of this whole thing that watching what happened to him and his buddies. Now, some of his buddies, one of his close buddies um, got thrown into prison and he died young because of it. And so some really kind of tragic things happened. And he kind of lucked out, although he died young. He died. He was only 44 years old when he died of respiratory problems. And who knows if he would have lasted longer, he might have got thrown in prison or gotten assassinated himself. But one of the things that happened was that when people knew he was writing his, his final book was coming out, he, he it became clear to him. Be, you know, that he could never get this thing published in his lifetime because he had made himself such a pariah that he was known as this the, the, the author of this theological political treatise. And so his big book that he'd worked on his whole life was now was for years the most famous one, his, his magnum opus called The Ethics. And it became clear to him he was not going to be able to get this thing published in his lifetime. And and what happened was, though, it's a kind of like fun, almost cinematic story about how his buddies, after he died, how he got sent by barge from where he was living in The Hague to Amsterdam and his buddy, Gutsy Courageous Publisher, and how they kind of like they, they did all kinds of chicanery to kind of get this thing out there. And what happened was it was banned everywhere in Europe, even in the liberal, tolerant Netherlands. And one of the things that you discover is that that's what made it so popular. And that even among people who really just were in it for a buck, people were risking prison because the price, once you ban the thing, the price of it and the interest in it went up so high that, that it got around and, it, and, they, and they kind of like sort of shot themselves in the foot. The censors of that era, which were the, the monarchs and the ecclesiastic authorities, they shot themselves a the foot. And so, yeah, he was this object of, you know, uh, uh, like you, you didn't want to talk about being a Spinozist in the 1700s or even the early 1800s, but among the cool thinker folks, they, they all wanted to find out what he had to say. And so part of the real <laughs> dilemma nowadays is they don't resort to censorship, you know, <laughs> actually, because that, 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 that they realize that the best thing to do, and this is part of their marginalization thing, that is that just to ignore people as much as they possibly can. And it's only at some point that they nowadays, when they can't ignore folks, that they have to kind of uh, do these things like deplatform folks and do these ki kinds of things. But it, 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 that kind of thing backfires. I mean, how many? There's going to be way more people that are going to be more, you know, interested in what the hell does this Malone guy have to say? The fact that they deplatform right. them from Twitter, you know. And so they, they're, you know, what happens is these guys get arrogant and stupid, and they don't realize that's the only hopeful thing I could say about this censorship, marginalization sort of stuff. Is they don't realize there's blowback. To that because among certain people you create somebody who is now like an object of interest like what the hell do you, i'm always interested when anytime anybody gets the platform whether i agree with them or not you know whether i whatever the heck it is is like well what they do you know what they do to get themselves the platform right and we're talking very high level so i just want to bring it back as we're nearing uh, our, our time the end here um of a fascinating conversation. I just want to bring it back to parents, right? What you recommend as a psych, as a clinical psychologist, and as a a researcher and expert in many of these, you know, areas, mental health. What do you recommend? What can parents do? Right? There's so much fear right now with COVID, with like we said, the stress and the anxiety about their children performing at school, uh, the medications that are being offered or request. Uh, you know, suggested and so forth. What can a parent do after they just gotten a diagnosis and now they're like facing this like doomsday prophecy of the future? What, what do you recommend? 
Well, I, I would tell them, and because I've, I've, I have these conversations all the time with, uh, with parents at certain stages of this, is that the number one priority, they're going to get thrown, all these authorities are going to tell them, well, you got to do this, you got to do that, and this is what your kid has, and this is what your kid doesn't, is like, you want, with the parents who have enormous regrets down the road, what they don't do, and their gut told them to do it, and they didn't go with their gut, was prioritize their relationship with their kid. And realize at the end of the day, if my kid feels like I'm trying to get them to be something that they're not, if my kid has all this resentment with me, if my kid hears me constantly sort of seeing that I'm, I'm frustrated by what they're doing. And that's what happens to a lot of these kids, by the way, who get labeled ADHD and they're and they and they and they and they and they, and they, and they see their parents constantly sort of frustrated, frustrated they're taking them to different doctors, frustrated that they're trying all these drugs or behavior modifications. And they're never their their relationship with their parents is almost there's never almost any time where they're feeling like my parents like me. <laughs> I know it's as simple as that, but they just they have this sense that like at some point and sometimes they completely snap and go like well you know if they don't really like me and they you know you know why the heck should i really care about how i behave with them and so there's a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy that happens there and it's that's really tragic because some of these parents they're really in their own head they're trying desperately to do the right thing and do what these authorities tell them to do is the right thing and they're losing the big picture that once you whatever what once you get to the point where your kid resents you for like trying to get, you know, because your kid feels like you want them to be something that they're not essentially, you've lost the game. You know, like what well, you put all this money in, you put all this time in, you know, being this parent. And now you've got a kid who's only so happy when they get to a certain age to have nothing to do with you or as little as possible to do with you. And you have never have any kind of adult relationship. So maybe you hang around with a lot of other parents who tell you that's normal. Yeah. Once kids hit a certain age, they don't want to hang out with you. Well, that's just nonsense. You know, there's plenty of kids out there who they felt their parents really liked them and really cared about them and tried their best. and They had good relationships that the most fun time for those parents is when these kids become adults and. And, you know, and so I, I would tell these parents, you know, uh, to keep that in mind. The number one priority is if they feel like they're doing anything that's going to be creating resentment with their kid, they, they may want they may not want to do that. And they may really want to like put a lot of energy having this kid feel like they really dig hanging around them. They really care, not just care who they are. They really enjoy being around who they are. And if it's impossible for those parents to do that because of their temperament, at least be able to say, like, admit that there's nothing essentially wrong with who you are. I'm just this kind of person. It's really hard, but I'm so happy you've got other kind of people in your life, your coach or your other somebody who really digs being around who you are. And, and, and so that's what you want to try to do. Have this kid feel like if you know that you dig who, who they are or that, that you're really promoting having around other people who dig who they are. And I'll have that with parents all the time. Like I'll have these oppositionally defined kinds of kids and these parents sometimes they're so compliant it's just so hard for them to deal with a kid who's constantly confronting them who's constantly disagreeing with them i like kids like that you know they're interesting for me they're challenging and so a lot of parents they're so happy that these kids you know that, that i'm hanging out with them because they really want their kids to have somebody who really digs who they are and they know it's their problem that they have a hard time digging digging their kid so that's that's if i have to leave parents with that one thing i would i can't emphasize that enough that's beautiful. Yeah, very straight, beautiful. I love it. And I just want to, and I'll put this in the show notes. I just want to point out again that uh, listeners can get your book now, your current book that's out, Resisting Illegitimate Authority, A Thinking Person's Guide to Being an Anti-Authoritarian, Strategies, Tools, and Models. I'm going to link to that. And then we're excited for the new book to come out. And perhaps we could do a follow-up 
uh, podcast on that would be really great. Um, and I just want to say to parents listening, what I'm taking away just from your last statement too, and talking about your book is like, resisting is okay. Questioning is okay. Thinking is okay. And even being anti-authoritarian is okay because ultimately it serves us having more knowledge around, say, our child with a diagnosis around ADHD, right? Is it a mental disorder? Is it not? And like you said, is it perhaps uh, more destructive to put a label on it, to start seeing them as broken, disordered, instead of spending time with them, helping them regulate, be together, love, connect, uh, and just accept the child for who they are and perhaps guide them in so they can unfold instead of trying to mold them into something that we think they should be in order to be happy in life, right? Right. Sounds good. Well, thank you, Bruce. Thanks so much for your time. And thanks for doing uh, the work that you're doing out there. I personally think it's super important work. And, and I really appreciate you uh, being a loud, important voice out there. Thank you, Roman. It's, it's been fun chatting with you.